My name is Andrew Faust. I've been doing permaculture design here in New York City for about eight years. We have 500 some graduates through a program that we do that's a 72 hour course that trains people on how to think more ecologically about all kinds of different landscapes that they might be encountering because we're in New York City. A lot of our graduates go all over the world so we give people skills that translate into really any landscape. And before coming to New York eight years ago, I lived off the grid for eight years in West Virginia where I built a straw bale house and really created what I call my permaculture PhD project, which was a lot of self-sufficient closed loop homestead systems that enabled me to understand how do you really take permaculture and scale it up, which is what I'm gonna be presenting to you tonight, which is really largely more relevant than a lot of the what I often call fancy backyard gardening applications of permaculture, which are equally useful. However, it may be arguably more useful for us to think about how do we retrofit the entire infrastructure of an industrial system with a modality of design that happens to give a lot of insights when we start to apply it to something like a cityscape or an industrial economy and dismantle it with intelligent tools. So a lot of what I'll be really probably going rapidly through materials that each of which you could spend an entire career on, uh, kind of get ready for a bit of a roller coaster ride. I'm going through a lot of information. So I like to sort of, you know, Buckminster Fuller talks about, he says, if you're going to design, start with the biggest context possible. So what this is about is what I call a bioregional economy. So to put that shortly, how do we begin to take what is a petroleum-based import-export mind-extracted and refined economy and start to make it an economy that's actually more biologically based, plant-based, people-powered, what we would call by the people and for the people? What does an economy look like that we could describe in that way in the industrial high-density urban corridor of the northeastern United States, which has its own unique challenges? So when we look at civilization, civilization itself, as a bit of a lay scholar of history, it's clear to me that more often than not, civilizations are not sustainable, right? So the evidence shows that you can find a lot of information to be pessimistic with. And I've been for a while saying, you know, it's actually a bit of an indulgence for people to think that it's somehow beneficial to the world to be a pessimist because it's actually our responsibility as privileged class citizens to be optimists. And I think it's worth holding ourselves to some accountability, which is why I suggest optimism is our responsibility. Because there's certainly more evidence than not that we're probably not gonna succeed at some of the things that we might hope for. And so you have to have the wherewithal to say, here's the way I've put it. I'm often willing to die happy and fallaciously wrong as an optimist than angry and right as a pessimist. I think that that's something that's important to hold in your mind's eye when you think about what I'll be sharing with you. So optimism, right? How do we actually design a civilization that is adapted to where we are. 
We're on a planet in outer space traveling around the sun right now at 67,000 miles per hour. It's 24,901 miles in circumference. It's 70% covered with ocean, which is still where most of the world's protein comes from, even though it's over-harvested and overfished and industrially abused. However, arguably the most resilient ecology on the planet is the ocean. It's largely where I would suggest our hope lies in becoming responsible stewards of the ocean and better stewards of, of wild ecologies as a food source. So part of what I'll be presenting is how do we begin to transform the surface of the earth where we're land dwellers and begin to actually have it be a healthy place in terms of the wild landscapes and their ability to also support human populations and economies. So both cultivated landscapes as well as wild landscapes. How do we bring both of them back in ways that look more beautiful, diversified, and cooperate with how evolution works on this planet? You know, I always like to look at images like this because I think it's important to remember that human beings are capable of some amazing things when you look at a landscape like where the Inca created the ability to grow food in a place that is absolutely non-arable. However, I would suggest to you that vast surfaces of the planet have been cultivated that could have never grown food when they're terraced, when they're terraformed by people. They're actually able to support far more food than they ever could have grown when they were unattended to. So if we want to create a sustainable civilization at the very least, or one that's going to thrive, we look at patterns to details. And the pattern we're looking at here of design is this type of configuration is very much what buildings offer us as surfaces to do cultivation on. So the largest, most well-funded international agencies on food issues and hunger and relief issues basically are saying what you're seeing here, this is a statement from a UN document on international food security. And what they say is the world needs a paradigm shift in agricultural development from a green revolution to an ecological intensification approach, right? So this is sort of the way to describe agriculture that can't be done with machines, but can only be done by people. And the required transformation is much more profound than simply tweaking the existing industrial agricultural system. Because if you understand botany and plants and horticulture, you'll understand that GMOs are tweaking the industrial system. So this is the UN's way of saying, guess what? You want to ask us the best way to feed all the people in the world? Diversified, people-powered, hand-tooled, nothing to do with this monstrosity that you're looking at in this image. That's actually the worst way to do anything that has to do with this thing that we would call food, right? Which is actually mm -hmm. a sacred experience that we're fortunate to have a relationship with when we eat and we have desacralized it and turned it into an industrial product. So by getting food out of the corporate hands, we no longer have to deal with insane and inhuman landscapes which the industrial system creates. And we don't leave a legacy of 1,226 toxic Superfund sites. Look at a pattern here of analysis, which is you don't have to look at all the dots to realize there's an awful lot of them in the northeastern United States. 
All the nuclear power plants in the United States, according to the Congress and the Senate, are full up with the amount of waste they should be storing on site. Apparently, they actually were already full in 2000. And the Congress and the Senate said, you all better figure out a permanent waste repository within Compact. So they created these clusters where they said, oh, in the Northeast, you have to figure it out. And then the Southeast, you have to figure it out. Well, guess what? Nobody's found a spot that any geologist will sign off on that you can permanently dump radioactive waste. Nobody, nowhere, no how. Bad news, bad plan, bad idea. <laughs> so really important that we kind of underscore the real theater of the absurd that we're talking about when we look at the, even entering into the conversation, the notion that nuclear materials would be somehow necessary to human existence on planet Earth. They're nothing but inherently detrimental and toxic. They are outdated behemoths left over from the nuclear weapons economy because we live in a population that generally has amnesia about history. People don't remember that the reason we built nuclear power plants was to create fissionable materials for nuclear bombs in the Cold War. It had nothing to do with electricity. In fact, none of them have ever made a profit. They're all in the hole and they're all subsidized, so we give them millions of US tax dollars so they can keep contaminating our air, water, and soil. It seems like a really good plan for what to do with our tax money, right? And I often really like to bring home these rudimentary things like, why don't we just enforce the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act? Let's just start there. Because, you know, the EPA estimates 37% of rivers and 50% of lakes in this land of the free and the brave are unfishable and unswimmable. So if you're foolish enough to let your children play near these waterways, you're actually potentially creating an environmental hazard to their health by them playing in nature in 50% of the lakes and ponds and 30% of the rivers and streams. I'm suggesting that's an unacceptable price to pay just to have a job, lights at night, and a certain degree of comfort in our lives. And I'm actually suggesting that that's achievable without exploitation, contamination, being part of our legacy after we're dead and gone. All we have to do is start to adapt to agriculture. Agriculture is why permaculture spends so much time on first saying let's redesign agriculture, because we actually want to salvage civilization. We're actually not interested in kicking civilization in the can and saying now come live with us in a survivalist ecotopic camp compound that we've created. <laughs> after the collapse and contamination is everywhere. <laughs> Cormac McCarthy, the road. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> what to be living in that? So permaculture is actually saying, let's salvage civilization. Let's figure out like what pieces of this thing that we're enwrapped in are actually worth keeping around. I like to suggest things like hot water on tap. Top of my list. Really awesome food to eat from a diverse diet that's coming from wild landscapes that are healthy and awesome farming landscapes where people really love doing what they're doing. So we need to adapt agriculture to actually pay attention to topography and to water. We need to create diverse productive farms that are a solid foundation to civilization. Ones that incorporate annuals and trees and animals and actually look like a wild ecology but they're actually an assemblage of domesticated plants and animals that produce way more per acre than a wild ecology will for human settlements and culinary uses. 
The other thing that permaculture is very sophisticated about is it's saying we're not Luddites who want to eschew technology. We actually want to strategically, appropriately, intelligently use technology, not just be whimsical victims of it who imagine it's our panacea cure-all that we need to be ubiquitously throughout our lives, but that it's actually something that's a tool that we use with intention and with a plan and with an agreed upon set of values about when is what type of technology actually appropriate just to enter into the American lexicon, the concept appropriate with the word technology is gonna be a huge evolution for our society. <laughs> just begin to ask that question. It's like, whoa. As Americans believe like, oh, technology, it's ubiquitously good. Are you kidding me? And permaculturalists are actually a bit of conservatives when it comes to this and we say, well, Let's look at a generation or so down the road before we jump to that conclusion. Let's combine livestock with nut trees to create restored ecosystems. These are sort of the brass tacks of permaculture in that it's saying, look, if you look at the most robust, ancient, huge land-dwelling organisms, trees and animals way outproduce annual cereal crops, which are right now 60% of the world's food, right? Rice, wheat, soy, and corn. And I'm suggesting that a lot of the Northeast in particular needs more trees and needs more animals. And when we combine these things, we start to be able to actually adapt how we farm to make sense of where we are geographically, rather than farming being what we call in design a sort of plop and drop. We just sort of show up and you're like, yeah, we're gonna do these animals and these broilers and these layers, but you don't think about heirloom or heritage varieties. You know, there's over 4,000 species of plants that have been domesticated throughout human history and over 53 species of animals. So what permaculture looks at is the history of agriculture and we say, how about if we take analogs from around the world that kind of look like this climate and we bring them here, like Scottish Highlander cattle. And you start to create landscapes of animals and plants that are basically not needing you to interact with them very much and you selectively harvest from them in a way that enables them to just keep producing yields for you without you needing to do very much maintenance at all. And the idea here is let's create vast landscapes that actually begin to connect city to country corridors and create regions that are more self-reliant. More self-reliant in energy, more self-reliant in food, more self-reliant in building materials, more self-reliant in textiles. The whole panoply of what it is that goes into the human economy is actually achievably, beyond sustainably harvestable from within a much closer distance of where these economies are consuming these goods and services. So if you begin to, from a design perspective, say, all right, our planning goal for the Northeastern Corridor is to close the loop and begin to regionally produce more of what it is, people who live within Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York City, and Boston, and the outlying metropolitan areas, which adds up to 120 million people. It's over a third of the US population. So it's worth our design work to say, how do we actually pull the whole Northeastern Corridor out of a self-destructive, contaminating quagmire into actually having good air quality, good water quality, good transportation nodes that enable people to have a better 
quality of life. It's not about standard of living. It's about quality of life. And that has to do with better regional self-reliance because ultimately that's what leads to autonomy, independence, jobs that have integrity instead of jobs that are just worker ants and industrial cog of an import-export economy. And landscape design that's based on watershed analysis. So where in the Hudson Valley watershed should we have what types of products being generated? Where do we put solar thermal plants? Where do we put in hydroelectric? Where do we put in windmills? Where do we put in the rotational grazing farms and the agroforestry operation and the high density cluster housing that's gonna be closed loop in its energy systems? It's not about growth or no growth, it's about what kind of growth where in a way that's actually done strategically and in an ecologically informed way. Right? And that's important that we have a new model for economic development. Not simply saying, oh, no growth, but saying, what do we actually want to grow? You know? Like looking at the demand for organic and local food has been growing at over 15% annually. You know, this is significant in terms of looking at the fact that the present demand is already outstripping supply, which means we have a lot of opportunities for people who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to be microenterprisers, who want to start to cash in on part of this $860 million of demand that Glenwood estimates is right now in the tri-state area, leveraging those dollars to buy products that come from Washington State. They come from Italy. You know, go to Whole Foods and look at BioNaturai Bilberry Jam. That's eight dollars for a little like six ounce jar. And ask yourself, so nobody in the Hudson Valley can produce Bilberry Jam <laughs> that could undercut BioNaturai. When you think about the overhead, right? It's just so lots of opportunities. And we start with food because what we're saying is, look. If demand is outstripping supply in the Northeastern Corridor and in the tri-state area in particular for local organic food, then what is going on with the entrepreneurial sector missing the boat on this? Right? And what we're getting at is we need to train up a new wave of growers, a new wave of farmers that actually farm and garden in a way that's ecologically informed, not just simply organic, but way beyond that in terms of farms that actually improve ecological health as well as local food security. And then how can farms become a connection between city to country landscapes? So that at a planning level in the United States, we need to think about relationships between the city epicenter and the fingers of the city that can be corridors where people can connect. And how do we create cities that people want to live in? You know, and the best way to cool down cities is going to be with living roofs and green roofs without a doubt. And it turns out even things like photovoltaics actually perform better when they're on a green roof so you end up with a win-win synergy because green roofs cool urban heat island effect. And when we get analytical with New York City, you'll find that way more energy is used in the summer keeping New York cool than it's used in the winter keeping it warm. In Shanghai, which is a very important industrial city with over 15 million people, about 15% of them work in farming. And they produce 4,000 tons a day over 60% of the city's vegetable needs. Crazy. That's a lot of food. I'm not saying all the soil is super healthy and safe that they're growing all that food on. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of questions about that, but 
pretty fascinating. 4,000 tons a day. Like this, is, this is serious jobs, right? People talk about jobs, jobs, and unemployment, and oh, what are we going to do, right? You're like, what are we going to do? Let's start getting off our duffs and getting more self-reliant. Because as soon as you start to make that a goal, you've got a lot of cool jobs that are actually more people-powered, not industrial, not a health hazard. This is espaliering European pears. Again, this is Suffolk Community Garden on the Lower East Side. Great example of good design. I call it in urban gardening, you want to max out the edge and max out the vertical before you get into doing anything in the middle of your garden. Because in the urban landscape, we're space challenged. There's a lot of people, there's not a lot of space. You don't want to fill up the middle of a backyard or a rooftop with your planters. You want to use your planters or your trees to do all kinds of beneficial things for you. So here, they're keeping the building cool. They're going to get more fruit because of the reflected light from the stucco wall that it's growing up against. They're also going to actually do better because of the protection of that wall. So a lot of beneficial relationships that we're looking at between how can we pick the right plant for the right place. And then realizing that the indoor landscape is actually also a huge health hazard. So a lot of these goals and building envelopes that frankly don't impress me very much where everybody wants to test building efficiency on putting a blower on the door and telling me whether or not any air got out. And I'm saying, but wait a minute, check this out. If one of the top five causes of illness in the United States is indoor air quality, and there's over 600 volatile organic compounds in your average public building, and that means that one of the top five reasons people are getting sick, you want to seal me more tightly into depending upon a HEPA filter and a bunch of air ducts so that I don't get toxified by your super tight hermetically sealed house, and you're going to call that eco? So there's a lot of things that happen because people believe that petroleum is always going to be part of our lives, right? So if that's your definition of what it means to be sustainable, then it makes sense that all we should be aiming for is using less and less energy. But if you actually pull your head up a second and say, wait a minute, we're on a planet in outer space rocketing around a giant thermonuclear furnace that's 93 million miles away. There's vast amounts of energy available on planet Earth. We're just squandering it all away because we're depending upon these trucks that depend upon huge standing militaries so we can extract this black liquid to run our dependent systems off of. As soon as you stop being in that paradigm that ultimately our only ability is to be less bad news, less oil, you say, how about if we just get off oil completely? Right? Then you're in a different paradigm. And then you realize why I'm saying that when you realize that the EPA is saying there are 600 volatile organic compounds in your average public building. Because what I'm getting at is I'm saying the stuff we're making stuff out of is toxic. So until you change materials, which is what stuff is made out of, and energy and how we're generating it, you're in this weird downhill struggle of putting filters on the end of pipes and trying to be less bad and use less fuel and put on low flow shower heads and thinking that that's all ecological. It is, if and only if, the way in which you got that pressure or got that water depended upon fossil fuel inputs. NASA has identified a huge amount of plants that do a great job at cleaning up contaminated air. So a viable mitigation strategy is absolutely to bring more house plants in. They estimate about three plants for every five cubic feet of office space will clean up 
all the volatile organic compounds that are in your little cubicle office space that they create. Three plants. Because what's happening, the microbes at the root zone of the plants are eating the volatile organic compounds that are in the air. And NASA's actually found that they get better at the particular cocktail that's in your particular building. So initially they're digesting like 80%, then 90%, then 100%. Because the microbes that can eat your cocktail are the ones that survived and the ones that can't die. And that's when you're starting to use the evolutionary power of microbiology to become your ally in solving a lot of the problems that the industrial economy has just thrown us into the midst of. As I mentioned, the sun, giant thermonuclear furnace, 93 million miles away, pouring vast quantities of energy over the Earth's surface every day, most of it largely untapped by our industrial petroleum-powered economy. In China, 600,000 people work building solar thermal units. Over a third of all homes in China get all their hot water from solar thermal, more power than 40 nuclear power plants combined. In Calcutta, 26,000 people are employed just producing compost. Compost becomes a big deal when you scale up your analysis of it. We need many more, lots of different types of composting systems, right? 3,380 tons a day of organics are hauled out of New York City. From a design opportunity, it's a missed yield that we need to close the loop on, create jobs, create energy, create soil, create better autonomy, and over time figure out how to not be dependent on trucks that are bringing in tons of plant materials that we're creating energy creating jobs and creating soil out of, right? It's a retrofit way to take the industrial system and begin to create a sustainable system out of it. Magic Hat Brewery, I take students here because I teach a five-day class in permaculture for regional planning at a school in Vermont called Yestermorrow. And so we go, the Magic Hat Brewery uses a biodigester to treat all of its wastewater and there's a biogas electric generator, both, this is the one that's used at the Magic Hat Brewery to produce power for the brewery, but there's one that Con Edison actually built off of the Fresh Kills landfill that produces power for 2,000 homes in Staten Island. After generating electricity and making hot water, it provides excellent quality fertilizer because you're doing source separation. I wouldn't want to touch the sludge that comes out of the Newton Creek biogas generator because it's combined waste flow, it's toxic waste. Don't let anybody delude you into thinking that municipal sludge is anything other than that. Because right? in, in New York, we used to dump it about 80 miles off of the coast, and it killed everything in the ocean. So then they dumped it 150 miles off the coast, and it killed everything in the ocean. So then they trucked it to a landfill in Texas that's actually 12,000 acres in size. And then they just changed the law and said it's actually class B fertilizer and you can put it on farm fields. So that's now what happens to sludge. And don't ask me exactly what happened that made sludge suddenly become something that killed stuff in the ocean and they had to truck to Texas to be okay to put on farms. But they changed that like 15 years ago in their infinite wisdom. So in Sweden, biogas is actually 25% cheaper at the pump than gasoline is. In China, 30,000 biogas plants power 40 million homes, right? And what does this mean? This means literally, what are we talking about? It's basically like taking a septic tank, capturing the methane, and sending it to your stove, but you can also send it to a generator so it can also be how you create electricity. 
and you can treat it just like natural gas or propane, but it doesn't have the flammability or the blowback potential of any of those gases, so it's way less dangerous. Pretty amazing technology with a scalable application that you can use a little five gallon plastic carboy to make your own little home scale version of it to experiment with to like these things that are large scale municipal systems that can power whole villages, whole sectors of Brooklyn. Vermont Compost processes thousands of tons of food scraps from the capital city of Montpelier. Nationwide, the EPA estimates we're needing to divert 60% of what ends up in landfills, 41 million tons a year, that they're saying this could all be diverted and turned into soil or into jobs or into energy, and it shouldn't be in a pile of trash in the middle of Texas somewhere. Carl Hammer, the owner and operator of Vermont Compost, runs a multi-million dollar business from his integrated system. Check this out. Carl has 1,200 free-range heritage breed chickens that lay 900 dozen eggs a month he gives them no grain. All they eat are the food scraps from the city of Montpelier. We need to reimagine the city. You know, you look at the scale of a lot of these buildings and you absolutely can engineer a building like this. This building is actually under construction in Milan and it's called the Vertical Forest. We want to bring nature back into the city while generating power, hot water, and making honey. Right, so here you're looking at a nice, dense, stacked and packed example of urban application of retrofit. Let's get some shrubs, let's get a living roof. What you're seeing on the back there on that highest roof is solar thermal in the front, which is just for hot water, and the photovoltaic in the back, and a beehive on a roof right down from that. Living machines, a way to treat wastewater that's natural, it's beautiful, provides cut flowers, provides nature connection in the wintertime for urbanites. In other words, we need lots of different ways to process wastes in a city of eight and a half million people or 20 million people in the greater metropolitan area. It's not just gonna be one of these, it's gonna be a bunch of them. And we're gonna do it based on a block by block, borough by borough analysis. Big rain tanks, it estimates there's about 24 billion gallons of CSOs annually, according to the DEP that hit the waterways around New York. There's 12,000 publicly owned vacant lots. Which one should we daylight a river in so that we can have running water and trees to experience when we're in parts of the city that right now don't have any nature connection? And we want to reclaim beauty and recreational water experiences in New York City. Right? And one of the places we have an opportunity to create this new decentralized power grid with all these living machines and biogas generators and solar thermal plants and PV arrays, well, we've got 4,000 acres on 6,000 parcels that are considered brownfields in New York City. Perfect place for the new green infrastructure. We need to reforest along rivers, bring the vitality and nature connection back to city living create a national economy that's based on bioregions. What you're looking at is a map of places in the country that share similar soils, similar hydrology, similar native animal and plant communities, and they give us kind of a base map to start to say, so what types of crops make sense for this bioregion? What types of energy systems? What types of building materials? What types of products that are suited to that landscape make sense to produce locally? Right, so each region will have unique crops unique buildings, unique energy systems that are designed and engineered to be well adapted to each geographic area of the country. Imagine that. <laughs>
redesign our infrastructure to be regionally adapted, self-reliant, providing a diversity of green jobs. You know, you can see I'm being kind of loose in general about this because I think it's important not to say 100% of our jobs are going to come from right within our, you know, I'm just saying let's start with 3%, start with 5%. You know, some percentage would be better than very, very little to none right now, largely, as far as food and other stuff. So, right, the estimates are three days the trucks stop running and all the grocery stores are empty and Americans are desperate and things are getting ugly. Right, so. That's not a scenario we want to be in. So that's part of why I'm saying regional self-reliance as to exactly what it'll be unique to each region, what it is that we produce, right? So what we produce in the North Atlantic coast, which is where Philadelphia and New York City and Boston are, is different than the lower New England, Northern Piedmont, which is different than the high Allegheny Plateau, right? How we build, what the energy systems are, what types of plant and animals will do well there of those 4,000 plants of those 53 species. So we teach people all this stuff. How do you analyze where you are? How do you design homes? How do you design ways to grow food? How do you ultimately design a career for yourself creating this new economy and this new infrastructure? And paying attention to the fact that we're on an abundant planet that is in effect waiting for us to celebrate and acknowledge our ancestors and recognize that it's a wild ride on planet Earth and let's just kick back together and enjoy it more.